In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. It was November of 2008, and I was pastoring a church in California, and flew back to Henderson to meet with a group of people uh, to talk about planting a church uh, here in Henderson. About eight of us met in a living room and we talked and prayed uh, amongst ourselves about whether the Lord was calling us to do that. Uh, we read scripture and we settled on a verse uh, that uh, we believe the Lord gave to us that was the purpose for uh, starting Jesus the Good Shepherd. And that name Good Shepherd comes from that passage in Ezekiel uh, chapter 34 where the Lord says, I will be the shepherd of my sheep. And he says that I will seek the lost, I will bring back those who are driven away, I will bind up the broken, and I will heal the sick, and I will feed the fat and the strong with justice. So he is um, saying that he is going to bring justice to all people, that is to align them, right, to um, align them according to his will. And this is where the healing of the sick and the bringing back of the broken is found, is bringing them back into his ways, into his righteousness. Uh, and so we um, knew that the Lord was telling us that we were supposed to start a church. And we started to form a plan about when we would do that. Um, I decided that I could um, wrap up affairs in California and that Aaron and I with the kids could uh, move in January. So we had about three months. And during that three months, three ladies said they would set aside their tithes uh, so that we could open a bank account in January. So they saved their tithes, and then when we went to the bank on Water Street in January of 2009, we had over $2,000 to put into the bank. That allowed us to rent a space, to print programs, to open a website, to do all the things, buy wine and bread, all the things that we needed to do to um, open and begin ministry as a church. If we had been giving 1%, if we hadn't been giving the tithe, we would have had about $200, and there would be no Jesus the Good Shepherd. That's just a matter of, of fact, right? And so uh, when we think about the tithe, there is a practical component that's required for us to be able to proclaim the gospel and to invite those who haven't heard it. There's a practical matter of tithing, that is giving 10%, of what we earn to the Lord and there's a spiritual aspect and this is the same for everything that we talk about for all of the works in the church right Holy Communion is practical it's a meal that we need for our bodies and then there's a spiritual aspect baptism is washing we need to keep our bodies clean and there's a spiritual aspect so there's everything in the church has foundationally because our creator God has uh, the material world and the spiritual world hung together, framed together in this beautiful tapestry, a practical and a spiritual nature to it. And this is what he is reminding the people of God of in uh, the prophet Malachi. You remember that the prophet Malachi is uh, gathering the people around Jerusalem after they've returned from exile. So this is about 500 B.C. Um, they have been through the ringer, right? They have been in exile in Babylon. The Persians allow them to come back, but they're still under Persian rule. And so they're constantly um, having to write back to the Persian emperor to get permission for everything that they do, for all of their fundraising, for all of their building. And as they do this, they continually kind of get stalled and distracted by the world around them. Distracted by the paganism, distracted by the cares of the world, distracted by their concerns for their own safety. 
And the Lord reminds them in the prophet Malachi chapter 3, he says, you're here because of me. You have not been consumed because I don't change. He says, it's my faithfulness that has kept you here. My faithfulness that has called you to be this people to remind the world of my call to repentance and righteousness. And this is what makes people so mad and angry at the Jews. Right? This is why anti-Semitism has risen to new heights recently because the world looks and they see a people of God who have been put uh, to a specific purpose to remind the world that he calls us to righteousness and that those he loves he would discipline. And the world sees the Jews as this reminder of righteousness and the discipline of their Holy Father and they say we don't want to have anything to do with that. That needs to be destroyed and wiped away. And so this, this call to wipe away the Jews is just as, as new and vigorous now as it was in 500 B.C. because people don't want to be reminded of their sinfulness. And certainly the Jews did not want to be reminded of their need to tithe. But this was the, the, the need that was before them to proclaim the gospel, right? It required a tithe for them to reestablish the temple, which is the house of God wherein the scriptures would be read and where they would worship and where they would bring sacrifices and where they would meet the Lord. And it's the only place that this can happen. The church, the temple of God, is the only place where this can happen. There's lots of nonprofit organizations that do lots of good work, feeding the poor and clothing them and doing all kinds of, of good and charitable works, but there's only one place that can call the people to remember who they are, who they were created to be, and how it is that they're supposed to live their lives. This can only take place in the temple of God. And so there's the practical nature of us building and, and housing the temple and bringing the food in, and then there's that spiritual need of worship. We see that spiritual need planted all the way back in Genesis when Abraham um, is um, presented with bread and wine by the priest Melchizedek. You remember that the priest Melchizedek brings bread and wine to offer them in thanksgiving to God. Does that ring a bell for you, bread and wine? You heard that anywhere before, right? That is a primitive holy communion, right, that Melchizedek is bringing to Abraham. And what does Abraham do in response to to Melchizedek's offering of bread and wine. He gives Melchizedek a tenth of all that he has, a tenth of all that he possesses. And it's this way of him giving thanks to God, saying, Lord, all that I have belongs to you. Everything that I have um, belongs to you. And so I'm going to give thanks to you out of my substance to give thanks for all of my blessings. And this is how we give thanks to God and remind ourselves that it doesn't belong to us. We have to write a budget that reminds us that it, we are administering everything that we have for the Lord. Our children, our homes, our bank accounts, all of this has been given to us by God. We will not leave this world with it. And we have to do that by starting a budget with God at the top. This is what we do at Jesus the Good Shepherd. When we get $100, the first thing we do is send 10 of it to the diocese every month. We send 10% to the diocese. We give 5% to our missionaries. So we mail away 15% of what comes into Jesus the Good Shepherd before we ever spend a dime of it on anything here for the light bill or for the, the rent or all the expenses and uh, managing this place. And we do that out of Thanksgiving, reminding us that this is not ours, but that we're stewards for all that the Lord has given us. It's so easy to lose that focus and think, all this really belongs to me. Right? And I need to keep it and I need to hold on to it. But when we do a budget and when we look at the, uh, where we put God and where we put all those other things, we're going to see how important you know, food and entertainment 
and um, all the different aspects of our life come into focus, right? We start to see where their place lies in the importance of our lives. And the Lord is saying that we need to put him in his worship uh, first. 500 years later, after the time of Malachi, uh, we see Jesus speaking uh, to the Pharisees and to the Herodians under this Roman rule, right? How did that happen? The Persians um, are, as you remember, um, they are in control of Judea at this time, and they are in control for another 200 years until Alexander the Great and the Macedonian army sweep down, and they defeat the Persians, and they take over the Levant. They take over this this Near East, and uh, the, the the Greeks set up uh, empires, and they have uh, they have generals and they have armies right here in Judea. And indeed, the Germ- the, the Greek uh, generals desecrate the temple of God in Jerusalem. They desecrate it, and the temple has to be remade and restored, right, resanctified, which is um, that festival of Hanukkah. And as the Greeks become less and less powerful, and as the Judeans, as the Jews, fight more and more against the Greeks, they start to look for allies to write treaties with, right? People to to make friends with, to defend them against the Greeks. And the Jews start to send, um, you know, ambassadors all around the world, and they send an ambassador to a little um, newly formed empire across the Mediterranean called Rome. They make this nice agreement with these nice Romans who say, Oh, we'd love to trade with you. We'd love to share things with you. We'd love to defend you, right? And so the Romans come and they start to trade with them and they send armies. And pretty soon they say, You know what? We think we'll just stay here and administer all this for you. And we'll appoint a king called Herod. These are the Herodians. And he'll be um, our, our um, uh, person on the ground, right? And, uh, and you'll be under our control and authority. So now the Jews in the time of Jesus, right, are finding themselves, having finally gotten rid of the Persians and finally gotten rid of the Greeks, they have the Romans with their boot on their necks. And now they're saying, how is it that we can get out from underneath um, this oppressive pagan rule, right? And so there's many people who are saying, we can't have anything to do with the Romans, And there were many uh, Judeans that were acting as tax collectors, and they were basically um, seen as terrorists, right? They were um, aiding and abetting the enemy of of Rome. And so they said, you can't have anything to do with Rome. And this is the trap that they lay for Jesus, right? The Pharisees and the Herodians come and they say, "Uh, there's no way out of this. Either he's going to make himself an enemy of the Jews by saying you should um, pay taxes to Rome, Or he's going to make himself an enemy of Rome by saying, you shouldn't pay your taxes. Either way, we've got him. We're going to trap him. And Jesus does something very practical, right? He says, look at it and say whose name is on it. Whoever's name is on it, that's who it belongs to. So we can do the same thing. If you want to know if you're supposed to pay your taxes, just open your wallet and look at that dollar bill and see whose name's on it. Right? Christians pay their taxes, whether they're fair or just or not, however they're administered. We're supposed to do everything we can to be good and law-abiding citizens. But Tertullian in the 2nd century and all the fathers after him remark that this idea of the image on the coin is a bigger point that Jesus is making than about taxes. 
This passage really isn't about taxes. It's about who we belong to. And he says, pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and pay to God the things that are God's. And sometimes we just read that and we say, oh, sure, everything belongs to God. So everything that we have we'll give to God. And that seems just very general and nice. And it doesn't really require anything of us until we see that word image. And we're reminded, oh, yes, we are printed. We are made in the image of God. We read that in the first chapters of Genesis. We are God's coin. We are God's coin. We are made to be His coin in the world. He is spending us in His holy economy. He is sending us out for a return on His investment. And the return on His investment isn't money, it's not produce, it's not physical things. It's His virtue, His righteousness. He sends us out in His image to bear the the message of His love and He expects His love to come back to Him tenfold, a thousandfold, a good return on His investment. And so when Jesus in in Matthew chapter 22 um, says this about render to the things of God that are God's, He is saying um, that we are made in God's image, we are printed um, with His nature and we are supposed to bring his nature back to the world. So, what are those virtues? What are those virtuous things that we're supposed to be bringing back? St. Paul, in his first letter to the Thessalonians, the beginning of, of that wonderful letter, perhaps Paul's earliest letter, written not even 20 years after Jesus' death, reminds us of the three Christian virtues. So the return on God's investment that He wants to bring back to Himself, the things that we're supposed to be bringing back as His coin and His economy, are faith, hope, and love. Those are the three Christian virtues. Faith, hope, and love. These should be the hallmarks of our life. And when St. Paul writes about faith, hope, and love, he marries them to actions. He shows us what it is to live a life of faith, hope, and love. There are three actions that get paired with these three virtues. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Now many Christians for many centuries have tried to rip faith and works apart from each other and make them even opposed to one another. This is a fool's errand. They're always together. Works and faith can never be separated. Faith is pistis. It's it's, um, loyalty. Our loyalty to God. Our standing by Him. And there's only one way to be loyal to someone, and that's to act loyal. If you're in a a company of soldiers, to be loyal is to stand by them through thick and thin and to receive the same orders, right? And to do the work of a soldier. That's how we maintain loyalty. In families or in friendships, when we maintain loyalty, we say, I'm standing by you no matter what happens, and I'm going to do that same work that you're doing. I'm going to help you. Do that work. Your work becomes my work. That is the work of faith. We say, God, this is your plan of salvation. This is your plan to love, to bring people to know you, to bring back the sick, to bind up the broken, right? To find the lost. 
So that's our job too. We are with you in these works of love. The labor of love. Love is a labor. And there's many different images that we can use. The one that Jesus brings us in the upper room is that washing of the feet of the disciples. Though he is the master, though he is the rabbi and teacher, though he is God himself, he lays down his life and he empties himself so that he can wash the feet of those that were given to him. When we labor in love, we too sacrifice our lives, we lay down our lives so that we can serve those that the Lord has given us. It's a labor of love. And hope is a way in which we look at the world. And there are many different ways that we can look at the world. For enlightenment people, uh, we look at the world with criticism, right? We look at it with a kind of world weariness. We say, I'm not sure if I should believe that, and I'm critical of this idea. And we become kind of uh, mercantile people, right? I'll take a little bit of this belief and a little bit of that idea, and I'm going to craft it into my own individual thing based on my own critical thinking skills, right? Or we, we fall into nihilism, into this hopelessness and despair that there's no meaning and there's no good and we become resentful and angry. For Christians, that worldview is a worldview of hope. I remember being a, a three or four year old child in uh, our house in North Las Vegas and uh, the, the picture window in our living room was just low enough that I could see um, through the window and see into the front yard and my dad's Mustang had a hole in its muffler so you could hear it coming from about two miles away, right? And so I'd hear this rumble, burp, grunt engine coming around the corner and I'd run to the front window and I'd press my face against the glass waiting to see him come. That is the face of hope. That's the face that we're supposed to have waiting for our God and King and His return. We expect His return with that kind of joyful gladness and expectant waiting. We're listening, we're watching, we're running so that we can see Him. And because He's told us that we're supposed to love our neighbor, we do the same thing at Jesus the Good Shepherd. We stand at the sidewalk, we stand at the door and we wait expectantly for those to come that God loves. We invite them into his life of hope and salvation. And we could go back to the living room. And if we didn't tithe, if we didn't have tithers today, Jesus the Good Shepherd, these doors and the way that we're doing church would close in at least six and three months. We've got three months worth of cash if we don't give anymore. But if we tithe, these doors not only remain open, but they grow. And we're able to expectantly stand on the sidewalk and we're able to tell people what no place else is telling them. That God loves them, that he has a purpose for them, that he has hope for their hearts, that he has a plan for their lives, that he has salvation in their midst, and that he would greet them as his lost sheep. Malachi promises us that the windows of heaven would be opened in this place, and that God's grace would come upon us, and that we would be filled with his goodness. May we give and then receive the opening of the windows of heaven this day and forevermore.
Amen.